Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. As you're listening to this, we are 48 weeks away from Election Day 2024. I know it seems like a long way away, but it's not. Now is the time, gang, to get involved. Join the union.us, lincolnproject.us, or get involved with an organization in your community, guys. We cannot, cannot, cannot wait until the last minute to start this battle. Guys, we can, we must, and we will win, but only if we all work together. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Stuart Stevens, Senior Advisor to The Lincoln Project and author of The Conspiracy to End America, out now and available wherever fine books are sold. Stuart, always a pleasure to have you. Great to be here, man. Thanks for asking me to the party. Once again, I'm also joined by the legendary Joe Trippi, also a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and host of That Trippi Show, found wherever fine podcasts are downloadable. Joe, welcome back. Great to be with you, Reed. All right, gents, it's been a while since we've had you on, so let me start with this. I have no less than probably 10 books to my left about the nature of the threat facing America, probably another 10 or 15 behind me. We have all interviewed these people. We have all talked to the Ruth Ben-Giats of the world. And Stuart, what is it? You said to me in 2021 that our biggest mistake was not having a broad enough imagination. Here now we are less than a year away from Election Day 2024. Atlantic is just out with 24 of its contributors saying what all the threats are. Another book is out every week, written by very smart people, trying to wake us up. What will make the scales fall from the eyes? What will the alarm clock be? What will it take? Well, first, you know, that kind of works on the presumption that it will happen. And I think we have to allow for the possibility that we might be in the good old days right now. Look back on this as, you know, the last great moment in America. Look, I think that this is a point where the sort of way in which Americans have a sense of their own uniqueness, you know, be it manifest destiny, the fact that not since the Civil War have we ever experienced some traumatic internal change, you know, tanks never rolled through America as they did through Europe, that it limits our ability to imagine change. And I think that there is a natural tendency to say, okay, we went through bad stuff in the 60s, which we did, and we got through that. And I think that all of that makes it difficult to grasp the real danger of where we are now. And there is a fundamental American optimism that we celebrate as a very American positive trait. And it's almost as if being pessimistic is un-American. So I think that, you know, this is the country where anybody can be president, where you can grow up and be anything you want. You know, most countries don't have that. 
So I think all of those things, which in many ways are positives, now are a limiting factor in our ability to grasp the seriousness of the moment. All right. So, Joe, let me ask you the question, but in a slightly different way. If you are a big D Democrat of any stripe from blue dog conservative Democrat to the progressive wing, it appears that along that spectrum of the Democratic Party, the further you go toward progressive, the more likely it is that you might intellectually understand what Stewart is saying, which is, you know, it's hard to accept this, but we do because, you know, we're smarter than the average bear. But yet we're also not going to do anything within our own party to ensure that, like, we minimize the possibility of the worst possible thing happening. Yeah, I mean, look, that's the big ten of the Democratic Party. I mean, if you look at Israeli and Hamas and Gaza, from the extreme of Israel at all costs, nothing else matters, all the way to actually some who side with Hamas, not just the Palestinians, but that whole spectrum there's that kind of diversity of opinion, which the Democrats will argue over amongst themselves. And usually enough of them come together, which just is totally different right now than the Republican Party, which is unified behind Trump. And, you know, as Liz Cheney warned, you know, sleepwalking the country to a dictatorship. And so, you know, this normal debate and divide within the Democratic Party is normal. Sometimes people decide to stay home, like what happened with the Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton fight. I think Stewart's right. It's a question of whether these are the good old days. But in the end, I think I know my party well enough that as the contrast and as the stakes become clearer, and also we're in that stage where you can basically just, you know, polling and everything is a feeling thermometer. It's not real. You get to vent. But I think as we get closer, that's going to change. And in a lot of ways, I know we haven't asked this yet, but I'd rather be Biden in the pro-democracy side. Biden's in the position right now, even if you look at the polls and they say, hey, look, he's losing some uh, younger, losing some minorities, might be losing some folks because of his position in Israel. All that is him having to win back people that have been with him in 2020 were with us in 2022. He's got to win back people that have already voted for him and already been with him the entire time. Trump, on the other hand, I think, and Stewart says this a lot, and I agree with him, is you know, there's not anybody out there who didn't vote for Trump last time who's going to vote for him this time. I mean, they said he's, his vote share is not going up. So Trump's got to win people as his base, and he get more extreme. He's got to reach more people that are outside that extreme to get them to vote for him. Biden has to, in the Democrats and pro-democracy side, we, we've got to get people that have been with us in 2020. We're there in 2022 to stop a red wave that never happened. And I think, you know, I'd rather be trying to basically solidify people that, yeah, they may have drifted away a little bit, but we're trying to get them back to where, where they've been versus Trump having to grow somehow beyond that, you know, beyond where he's been in the 46 range. So, Stuart, you know, just to extend on Joe's point for a second on who you'd rather be, and I want you to put your campaign strategist hat on because you've done this for national candidates over the years, is we know what like Chris LaSavita and Susie Wiles need to do electorally in the upper Midwest, in Arizona, in Nevada, in Georgia, right? These are going to be the states again. And from a political standpoint, I think they're as likely as any two people we know who could 
design a plan like that. But you still have the X factor, which is Donald Trump, which is on any given day. Yes, you know, maybe a lot of us are inured to the insanity. I don't think we are, but a lot of other people might just sort of tune it out. But the truth is, is that, you know, on any given day, he could say something that, while it's hard for us to imagine, could put him in a place where there's just no coming back from, which is not a great place to be when the person you're trying to, quote unquote, control refuses to be managed in any way. I mean, look, let's go back to why did Trump win? which I think we forget enough. You know, Trump won with 46.2% of the vote in 16. Romney lost with 47.2% of the vote. And ultimately, Trump was able to win because he was able to turn out low-frequency white voters. I famously and incorrectly or infamously, you know, predicted that Trump would lose because I didn't think these voters were out there. I referred to them as the lost tribes of the Amazon. That, you know, this theory that if you just go up there, bang the drum loud enough, they'll come. And I mocked that. This turned out I was wrong and they were right. That's exactly what he did, right? But they were the lost tribes of northern Michigan, as it were. Exactly. That there were these people who, you know, we saw these voters in the Romney campaign. And, you know, they could have cared less about what we were talking about. You know, low taxes, smaller government, Russia, you know. But if you went out there and waved the bloody shirt like Trump did. Now, in the Romney campaign, I think people have a much better sense of Mitt Romney, you know, that was never even on the table. But what the difference in 20 was that he got those voters, his vote share went up, it went up to 46.9%. But enough of the college-educated Republicans, and I think the Lincoln Project played a large role in this, voted for Biden. So in a very real sense, Biden needs to get his repeat customers. They need to expand their base because they have lost more voters, they being Trump world, because older voters were Trump's base, like a typical Republican candidate. In many ways, Trump still performs like a regular Republican candidate. So older people tend to die more. Younger voters coming into this, Biden's best group in 20 was under 30 voters, despite the fact that he was the oldest candidate. So they have to somehow make up for that fact that they need more voters to compensate for the new voters that are coming in for Biden and ones that they've lost. That's where the third party becomes so critical to their strategy, because it goes back to this fundamental question you ask in every campaign. How many votes do we need to win? What is our our winning number here? And, you know, we've all worked for a lot of campaigns that we met our numbers and we sat there on election night and see, okay, we're meeting our numbers, but we're losing because we miscalculated how many numbers, how many votes we needed to get. So can Trump get 48% of the vote? I don't think so. Can he get 47.5%? I don't think so. I don't think he can go north of 47. But is that going to be enough to win? And the essential element of that is his third party element. How many out there are going to be? So I think that they've done a very good job at taking what should have been a fatal event in any candidacy, getting indicted with 91 counts and turning that into a positive for their base. It's not just me, it's you thereafter. Well, and so, Joe, let's stay on the third party stuff. And we, and we call it third party, but this could be Biden, Trump, RFK Jr., Cornell West, Jill Stein, Joe Manchin, no labels, right? We could have a seven candidates. I'm not going to call them all major, but seven candidates who could get some number of votes 
next November. If it was a parliamentary system, you'd be like, okay, there are more people who would probably be with a Biden coalition overall than with a Trump coalition. But as Stuart pointed out, and I still believe in many ways that a lot of these candidates are doing this either because they don't like Biden or because they want to secretly help Trump or they want to publicly help Trump or whatever the case might be. So you've got Stein, who's got sort of the weird Enviro Green thing. And then you've got Cornell West, who could be a threat to African-American voters. And you've got a Joe Manchin, who could be you know tough with conservative Democrats. And Larry Hogan, let's say, is a no-label stand-in that's tough with soft Republicans, maybe the people that Stewart described who went to a Biden. And then RFK Jr., who's sort of this weird, like, anti-vax moms and young environmentalists. So, like, it's a strange calculus that, frankly, we're really not used to anyway. Yeah. I, I mean, I was on a debate today with uh, Ryan Clancy from No Labels, oh. and uh, who does his, you know, we need democracy. You need more choices. Let's put more choices out there. Yeah, that's what we're offering. That's what No Labels is offering. I said, great. You know, you're right. Let's, let's do that. Why don't we have Manchin run as an independent, Larry Hogan run as an independent, Huntsman run as an independent. I want to give everybody a whole lot of choices. The problem with that is we wouldn't be splitting up the third party vote. We'd be splitting up the pro-democracy vote at the very time when Donald Trump will be sitting there, as Stewart says, with 45, 46% of the vote. The more choices, the more third party candidates, and there's a reason there's so many of them this time. Somebody's funding this stuff, you know, and so, yeah, I think Stewart's identified for me and I think for a lot of us what the biggest threat right now really is. And it's these third party candidacies and and no labels is, is one element of that, maybe the biggest element of it because of the funding. But Trump's the one that needs that. Trump needs to keep the vote, as Stewart said, around, you know, 46. If 46 can win, Trump can win. If it takes 48, not going to happen. Only Biden can get there between the two. If it's a you know one-on-one race, I feel very... I still, by the way, am convinced that Trump is going to be a weaker nominee than he was in 2020. You know, We'll see. I think it'll, we'll see in Iowa, New Hampshire, if I'm right about that. More people are talking about it. I've been talking about it for months, but more people are starting to think that that's a possibility. We'll see. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So, Stuart, let's talk about that for a second, because the primaries have not begun yet. The Iowa caucuses for Republicans will be January 15th. You know, there's this sort of Nikki Haley boomlet. I was on the phone with a reporter earlier today as we were recording this, asking about, you know, the Americans for Prosperity endorsement of Nikki Haley, which is the Koch network. I think I'm not sure which one of them is still alive. One of the brothers died. The other one's still alive. And I think maybe has passed it on to his son. And this reporter said, well, what do you think? I said, I think it's interesting. I'm not sure that it matters. And he said, well, what about the money? I'm like, well, ask Jeb Bush about the money. Ask all these people. Ask Ron DeSantis about the money. I'm like, money's great. Better to have it than not have it. But when you're up against a guy who is the former president, 
the leader of the party spiritually, ideologically, politically, uh, and has 100 percent name ID amongst everybody on planet Earth except the lost tribes of the Amazon. I think it's great, but I'm not sure that money in and of itself is enough to get anybody, you know, over the line against a guy like Donald Trump. But now here you are. We see that Haley and DeSantis, I mean, DeSantis takes his shots at Trump, but neither one of them still with this shrinking field want to take him on directly. Yeah. You know, my my theory about these things is that at a certain point, your candidate has to walk on the stage against your primary opponent with the mindset that one of us is going to walk off the stage alive and you might lose, you might win, but that's got to be the mission. And that's something that Mitt Romney in the primaries in 12 was very good at. He took on Rick Perry in the first debate and pretty much demolished him. He never recovered. He took on Newt Gingrich in Florida and recovered. There's a fundamental problem when you have a candidate who's been in, has 91 counts of indictment and you say if he's convicted of a felony, which is basically for overthrowing the United States government, you're still going to support that person. Once you say that, how do you attack that person? You know, you can't be given a greater gift in politics than have a candidate running under 91 indictments. And if you're not willing to use that against that candidate, there's this fundamental flaw of all these candidates. So what do you get with Nikki Haley that you don't get with more intensity with Donald Trump? And, you know, there's something that is very nostalgic about the Nikki Haley candidacy. A certain moment, like, you know, in the late 90s. I was going to say, we could have run it in 1999. And a woman, it's such a big deal, you know, a woman is running for president. It was like, man, have you woken up? There's a woman of color who's vice president of the United States. Do you remember Geraldine Ferraro? That the Republican Party is making such a big deal out of this. It's just so telling and sad. And I think, you know, to younger voters, if you talk to them about this, they're like, yeah, what? I mean, you know. Why is this a big deal? So, you know, particularly among all our donor friends, they long for that world. And all of it goes to a world that they would like to believe existed in which Donald Trump never happened. Right. And that world doesn't exist. They have to live in the real world. Well, and, you know, that's one thing that somebody was asking me about no labels. Like, what's a no labels donor look like? And I said a no labels donor is a Republican donor. They're a George W. Bush Republican donor. They're a John McCain Republican donor. They're a Mitt Romney Republican donor. And the awful brilliance of the Nancy Jacobsons of the world, they have been doing this exact thing, as you probably dealing with Clancy today, which is recreating a world that no longer exists and ain't coming back. Right. And the exact people that they are trying to reach, those McCain voters that are still left out there, the Romney voters that are still left out. There are people that have been voting in the pro-democracy coalition, enough of them. I mean, thanks again to the Lincoln Project for peeling them off and uh, you know expanding the Bannon line. But those are the exact voters that for them to do this, if they succeed at all, basically hands it to Trump, keeps it in that 45, 45, 46 you know, kind of range. I keep looking at the primary numbers for Trump, and I still think there's something significant that he's at 42 in Iowa and even lower in New Hampshire. That voters, when they're seeing these other, I'm not saying that there's some big, oh, yeah, I want that person more than, than Donald Trump, but the differential between how he's doing nationally in the polls and how he's doing in the early places where they're seeing 
the Nikki Haley's, the DeSantis's, where the local governor has endorsed DeSantis and where an evangelical leader like Vander Plaats has endorsed DeSantis. I think that, you know, you're in these multi-candidate fields, and we've all seen them. Is DeSantis going to take the evangelical group in Iowa away from Trump? Hell no. Can he take three or four points off of him? So in other words, Trump's not at 42, he's at 39 on caucus day. Does Nikki Haley slip by him? Does the press view that as a big surprise? All these things actually do have kind of impact, I think, going into New Hampshire. And I think the elements are there, not to stop Trump from being the nominee. He's going to, you know, particularly with the way the system on the Republican side works with winner take all and Super Tuesday coming up so quickly afterwards and where he is in the national polls. But I do think that we may be seeing, that's what I mean, some weakening in in his support and a widening of the Biden, the Bannon line, excuse me. Part of that, if it keeps growing, could just be Nikki Haley scoring points on Ukraine versus Putin and Trump. So it's those schisms, I think, are things that we can capitalize. Gives me the two things. Biden has to win back people. And I think we can even get some of the people that are currently thinking about Trump or, you know, voting in the primaries that that are going to get weaker on him as this proceeds. But we'll see. So, Stuart, a couple of questions for you. One is, and I remember sitting, I was in South Carolina at the time when George W. Bush had won Iowa and we lost New Hampshire by 21 to McCain. And we're like, oh, my God, we could actually lose. this." Yeah, thing but we, we were... only had a 65 point lead. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it was really like an outspent 80... the other guy three to one. So it was only an 86 point swing. Right. So there's the sort of always differential between Iowa and New Hampshire. But one thing I do want to drill down on literally and figuratively what Joe said is Trump does have a coalition. Okay, yes, it's 90 percent white, but it is not ideologically homogeneous. And so if Bob Vanderplatz takes three or four or five points off of Trump in Iowa, but that means three or four or five points of evangelical voters sit out 2024 in the fall. Trump really can't afford that. I think that Trump is going to be in the position that none of the candidates who he defeats in the primary are going to want him to win because they know that their chance of getting elected president in 24 will be better if it comes after two terms of a Democratic president than after what would likely be a disastrous term of a Republican. I mean, you could make a case that if we have an election in 28, that it would be the largest margin that any Democrat wins since Reagan won as a Republican. That was a reality when Reagan didn't really want Ford to win, and that intensity helped. Plus, I, you know, I think that there is a element here that if you're Chris Christie, right, how do you go out and campaign for Trump after you've said these things? I mean, if you're Asa Hutchinson, how do you do it? And Will they endorse Biden? I would hope Christie would, but you know I've been disappointed before. Romney says he's going to campaign. So close your eyes. You know you're going to have in you know September, October. Won't you have say a Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney campaign for Biden? Right, and then you've got the formers of like uh, Joe Wilson, who was a big MAGA guy. David Jolly, who was a mod Republican from Florida, 
right? You obviously got the Lincoln Project, right? You've got all these other people out there, uh, Kinzinger, obviously, yeah, who could be saying like either vote for this guy or do not vote for Trump. And and I guess that's another question is, you know, one thing is, do the AFPs of the world, do the Koch networks of the world say, we don't like Joe Biden, but don't cast a ballot for Trump? I mean, is that a possibility? The Koch network will not support Trump, without a doubt. But what they will do is they're going to support all these down ticket candidates, which are going to turn out votes that are going to vote for Trump. So, you know, it's sort of, you know, I, I find it's a whole separate conversation, but the Koch built, without a doubt, the most powerful private political organization ever built in America. And yet they couldn't stop Donald Trump, either because you know, partly they didn't try, but they weren't able to. And, you know, they had to sit there and watch a completely wholly owned subsidiary of Coke and Mike Pence suck up to Donald Trump for four years. And you could also, I think, make a very strong case, Stuart, that in the states where they did so much work at the state legislative level, that the monster got out of the cage on them, that these guys have all gone full MAGA now. They invented the machine and the machine turned against them. It's absolutely the case. Now, look, this is what scares me so much about what's happening in Israel. Is this going to turn off younger voters? You know, I think we would all say a year from now, this isn't going to be an issue in the same way everybody said Afghanistan was going to be the number one issue and never people didn't talk about it. But the intensity of younger voters turning out for Biden, along with African-Americans, is going to decide this race in all likelihood. Well, and so, Joe, I mean, to that point, you know, the, I'm going to call them the younger Dobbs voter, for lack of a better way to put it. They turned out in 20. They turned out in droves in 2022. They turned out again in the election, the off-year elections we had last month. So, yeah, do we, this is a weird thing to hope for, Joe, do we hope that their goldfish-like memory, you know, holds? And so by the time they get to September, like, they're like, holy shit, I can't have this guy. Look, I think that all the attention right now is on the president of the United States, all of it, in the political spectrum. If it's gas prices, if it's Israel, if it's Ukraine, anything that's going, the focus is on Biden. If you're unhappy with it, you know, approval ratings, et cetera. The reality is you got to give credit to Trump's team. They have kept him pretty much off the scope. Yeah, he says something outside the trial, outside the courtroom, et cetera, and he goes out on the trail. But he's not the focus right now at all. Part of that's because it's a done deal. He's going to be the nominee. The press isn't even you know, paying a whole lot of attention to him. That is not going to hold. There will be a shift as we get further along in these primaries, once he narrows down to him and Biden and you know these third-party crazies. That contrast is going to be there. Dobbs, gun violence, climate change, particularly for younger voters and some of the suburban women out there. Who right now, you know, look, it's always about the cross pressure. We talk about this a lot. You can have a woman who's concerned about Dobbs and is unhappy that her grocery bills have gone up. Those are two things. In the end, so far in 2020 and 2022, against a hell of a bad economic information in 2022, we're far better off today than we were then and will be in 2024. I think it's that contrast. And I think that's why we have to keep reminding those people why they are so appalled by Trump and MAGA and what's happened with the court 
at the same time, yes, the contrast between Biden and Trump, which I think served Biden with winning in 2020 and saved the red wave from, you know, wiping out Democrats in 2022, that those Democrats, those women, those Republicans that are concerned about Dobbs, Dobbs dads, et cetera, that those are people that Biden can win back. It's got to do both things. And I think I'm actually pretty optimistic about our ability as long as we, we got a lot of work to do. Don't get me wrong, all of us. And we certainly need the resources to do that work. And that is concerning. Like you see the stories now about low dollar donors not funding some of the progressive organizations like Move On to where they were in the past. You know, I think low dollar donors are starting to look at who gets this. That's why it's one of the reasons I joined you guys in the Lincoln Project, because like you're the only people I think that showed the tough way you have to fight this battle in ways that a lot of my compatriots on the Democratic side who run campaigns just don't understand the language, the way to talk, who the, the voters we need to win over in the Bannon line are and how to talk to them. And so like if the resources are there, I'm convinced that once again, you know, the Lincoln Project, for one, will make a big difference. But yeah, the Biden people have to be able to pull these people back that were with him. We've got to get those Bannon line voters to, one, keep reminding them why they're Bannon line voters, right. why, don't go why back they to don't Trump. want to keep doing this. Yeah, don't go back to Trump, which I think is an easier lift than Biden trying to get people to say, hey, come back to me. So guys, let me ask you this. I know that we're all failed prognosticators of election results sometimes. But let me ask you this. So, you know, we're about 120 days from Super Tuesday. You know, there's a lot that's going to happen between now and then. And so, Joe, you've laid out, you know, how Iowa and New Hampshire for Trump could be different. Doesn't necessarily mean or at all mean that he's going to lose the nomination. That's one. Two, for the president, you know, you've got, you know, as I call him, Dean Quixote. Dean Phillips still hanging out in New Hampshire, right? So take us through, you know, we've got court cases. I think Trump has a court case that starts again, maybe the next E. Jean Carroll piece that I think starts the day after the Iowa caucuses. I think he's got another one that starts no sometime late in January. Yeah, I spent, this is how I spend my weekends, folks, like going through a calendar of 2024, <laughs> figuring out what's happening. So Joe, what does the next four months look like to you? I think the dynamics in this race are going to change dramatically coming out of Iowa and going into New Hampshire, I really do not see any way that the person who takes second in Iowa isn't treated as, finally, we know who the other candidate is. After this frustration of crummy debates and, you know, them not, nothing really happening, there's going to be a huge pent up, just tell me who the other guy is or the, the other woman is. And I think given the way New Hampshire votes, and Trump's real weakness there, when you look at the polling numbers, I think there's a chance somebody beats him there. I really believe that that piercing of his invincibility, particularly with some of those, you know, the people who are with him because he's so damn strong, he never loses anything, his reaction to it. And if it's Nikki Haley and you're going into South Carolina, like I said, I think he probably still continues and takes the nomination. But even if it turns out to be a 65-35 fight the rest of the way, or hell, 75-25 the rest of the way, that's a totally different thing from this. You know, those 25 points are people that are, I think, less likely to go back to him in the general election. But I don't think, and one thing I would say is, I don't think any of these cases are going to have 
the suits are going to have anything to really impact much. I don't think it's going to change the votes of those that are with him. You know, if he shoots somebody on Fifth Avenue, he probably had a good reason. This is all hoax, and they're just going after him to stop me. All that stuff is going to continue registering. That could change with an actual conviction. But I don't, one, I don't think that'll happen until very late in the process, you know, May, June, maybe even later than that if it does happen. And so, no, I think it's the politics of this. And I think either way, I don't see how Trump's stronger than he was in 2020 and 2016. So I agree with Stewart that we're stuck at 45. At that point, I think we can peel off more votes from him. Biden can bring people back. And the threat then, the only real threat, the threat to democracy is no labels and the third party candidacies that could, you know, okay, I don't want to go back to Biden and I'm angry about something, so I'll vote for one of these third parties. None of them have a chance to win. They're all going to be spoilers. Right. Stuart, how about you? Look, nobody wins the presidency, the nomination without some bump in the road. I mean, very few. I mean, John Kerry probably did a better job of it than anybody. Um, uh, salt in the wound. Salt in the wound. Something happens. I used to always say it's impossible to get nominated for president without being humiliated. It's how you deal with that humiliation. Now, with Trump, he's impossible to humiliate. It's sort of a different world. But I could see Trump losing Iowa. I could see him losing New Hampshire. But, you know, one thing that I do think Trump is in a better place to be a candidate in 20 four than he was in 20. In 20, he was an incumbent. He had to defend a record. He had no idea what his record was. Well, it was killing half a million Americans. Yeah, well, there's that. that. Yes. And, you know, he, he now is in the comfortable place where he's running against the establishment. He's running against people out to get him. He's running as a grievance candidate. So I think that that is a better place, a more comfortable place for him to be running. But look, you know, in 16, there are two truths, right? More people voted against Donald Trump in the primary than had ever voted against a Republican nominee before. And more people voted for Donald Trump than had ever voted for a Republican nominee. So it was very split then. And I imagine that at the end of the day here, he's going to win, but it will be hard and it will be split. The difference is if Trump loses, he's not going to endorse the candidate who wins. And when Trump beats Nikki Haley, She's going to be out there, you know, in her high heels, which she seems to find some reason to vote for, campaigning for Donald Trump. You know, we've talked about it, but I don't think it gets enough attention, guys, which is if Trump were somehow by miraculous circumstances to lose the nomination, like and everybody's like, oh, Nikki Haley trounces Joe Biden. Not if 25 million Republican voters stay home. She doesn't. Right. That's the whole thing is like, you know, as Trigvi is our good friend. And dear colleague Trigby Olson, I say you have to play the game you're in. Donald Trump is not a politician. He is the leader of an authoritarian movement. And if he were to lose the game, he's not used to losing. He's not going to play by the rules anyway. He's going to say, F you. I'm not going to your convention. I'm not raising you any money. I'm going to tell my people, stay home. It's all rigged. You know, the question I've got for both of you is if he does lose New Hampshire, he's not going to lose Iowa. I don't, I don't think so. You know, but. If he loses, let's say, one state, New Hampshire, and it's Nikki, what are the odds of him completely losing it, going thermonuclear on her, attacking her? And I just don't know. I mean, I think there are a lot of women in the Republican Party 
you know, I'm not talking about the diehard MAGA, but I think there are a lot of women in the Republican Party that it could bleed off another three or four points of him just attack the way he attacks or the style he does it could further move those suburban Republican women on who are worried about Dobbs and other things, just pretty much solidify them as, okay, I'm not with him. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I think we should assume that that's going to happen prior to Iowa. And certainly, if not prior to Iowa, if she's the one, as you described, Joe, the one that gets the ticket out of Des Moines, then he'll certainly do it before New Hampshire, even if his people are telling him not to. He won't be able to control himself. We know that. You know, I mean, he just can't help himself. And I think also, you know, Rick related a story. I don't know if it was on what show or if he just related it on a call that he had been talking to a friend who had attended a MAGA rally. And I guess like they had a preacher or something before Trump. And they were talking about what a great thing, you know, everybody's cheering, everybody's cheering. And then this guy says, and what a big win for life Dobbs was. And like all the men are cheering and all the women just go stone faced. Right. Even in that crowd, it was not. And now, does that mean they're going to suddenly vote for Joe Biden? I don't think so. But it's certainly a good reminder that, again, American women went to bed on a Thursday night, the freest people humanity had ever known, and they woke up on Friday and they weren't. And I think that's still a big deal. Green, this is why Trump, you know, when he goes out and he says that the heartbeat bill is wrong and stuff, you know, he is already gaming that. I mean, I think. Oh, that, for sure. In the same way he's defending Medicare. <laughs> well, and he's now claiming, and look, you can see now, they're now claiming that Joe Biden is the anti-democracy candidate. Yeah. Because it's all projection at the end of the day. It's also confusing. Just blur the lines and chaos and I win. It Just remember all the ballot measures we ever ran, right? What do we want to do? If we couldn't win on the merits, confuse the hell out of them because confusion equaled a no vote, right? 100%. All right, guys. Well, listen, before I let you go, first and foremost, let me say thank you. Stuart, if you still dare to tread on social media, where is it and what else can we find you working on? God help me. I'm, I'm only on Twitter, which is an indication of a deep character flaw. I need to follow you guys over to Greener Pastures, but Stuart P. Stevens on Twitter, please stay away, but that's where I am. And don't forget his new book, The Conspiracy to End America, I Have Read It, is definitely worth the time. All right, and Joe, how about you? On Twitter, at Joe Trippy, And also, you know, that Trippy show, the podcast, I'm going to start doing a, a section every week on taking a real look at what the latest Iowa poll, New Hampshire, I mean, sort of mapping out, you know, whether I still think what I've been talking about, whether I'm seeing signs that it's actually happening or pouring cold water and getting in front of like, uh, I'm totally wrong, you know, ahead of time. So, but I think that's good analysis that people can look forward to if they, if they show up on that trippy show to, to hear that. Well, and let me just say uh, for the audience out there, so I get to be on the phone a lot with Joe and Stu, and I think it was either last year or maybe it was in 2021, but there was a day when we were going through his particular race and Joe had surveys, like public survey results up and Stuart was asking, like, what about this cohort? What about that voter segment? What about this? And somebody like sent me a note on Zoom, like, what are we doing here? I go, isn't this great? Like, I was such a nerd because I got to hear you two guys literally like breaking down numbers in real time about this voter here, those voters there. Could this candidate do this? And I'll tell you, every opportunity you have, guys, to listen to Joe and Stu, I, I certainly am more than lucky to be able to do it. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter for now at Reed Galen on threads and Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP and on Substack, the home front. Check it out. Sign up if you dig it. Really quick writing on the home front. Really, really good. Really, really good. Well, I appreciate it. Joe Trippy, Stuart Stevens, thanks for joining me. Thank you, guys. 
Thanks for having us. And everybody else, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.